Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Henke. Lee Tesdell owns an 80-acre farm near Huxley, Iowa that has been in his family since 1884. He's an advocate for soil health and conservation practices and was named a cover crop champion by the National Wildlife Foundation. In this podcast, Successful Farming Agronomy and Technology Editor Megan Volstead has a discussion with Tesdell about six reasons to implement cover crops on your operation. Lee, thank you for joining me today. Tell us a little bit about your Century Farm. I'm just sitting out here on my tailgate or my pickup on my farm. My farm's located a couple of miles north of Alleman, so I'm actually in Polk County. And, in Iowa. Uh, in Iowa, yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a chilly uh, mid-April morning here, 29 degrees Fahrenheit air temperature. And interesting to note that the soil is at about 37 degrees, a little warmer. <laughs> this 80-acre farm was bought by my great-grandpa, Sievert Testall. He came back from the Civil War. And in 1884, he bought this piece, and it's been in the family since. So what we're trying to do is practice a number of conservation practices out here to really, in a way, make up for, you might say, the mistreatment of the farm in the past. I'm not criticizing people who came before us, but just saying that we know more now about soil erosion and uh, water quality and things like that. So we're trying to kind of make up for some of the mistakes uh, our ancestors made. And one of the things we do is we uh, promote cover crops. We're in year eight of our cover crops here. Uh, Megan, what have you noticed, your readers and your audiences at Successful Farming, when it comes to cover crops, what are they interested in? We're often hearing a lot about soil health practices. And as you mentioned, and I've been to your farm to see a lot of those practices that you've put into place, conservation-minded even through your cover crops, but also saturated buffer and prairie right. strip. There's a right. lot of interest growing in that area. And specifically with cover crops fitting into that, you know, a lot of people want to know how that impacts their farm financially and economically, but also through soil health. So those are kind of the two angles that a lot of people have questions about. And, and you know, of course, how to implement and how to start is a really big topic. Yeah, I've been noticing in uh, Twitter and Facebook conversations, uh, there's a Facebook group called Everything Cover Crops that I follow. And um, there's a a group on Twitter that uh, regularly posts about conservation. Well, I I would agree with you, Megan, that there's a lot of interest. One of the uh, challenges we have, of course, here in in Iowa is that a lot of the farm ground is rented from absentee uh, landowners. My observation is that if the landowner isn't engaged and on board uh, with conservation, it's pretty hard for the renter to take on that new responsibility by themselves. It seems like we've covered this somewhat on successful farming coverage too, that there really has to be a good relationship and an investment into right. cover crop practice from both sides. That's what uh, I try to work with uh, my my neighbor and my tenant on. We try to work together and we don't 100% see eye to eye always, but I think it's a pretty good working relationship, and I think we're actually a pretty good example of a landowner and uh, operator working together. I do have six main reasons that I like cover crops on my farm, and like I said, we're in uh, year eight uh, of cover cropping on my 80. Only 60 acres of the 80 is row crop farmed. I have creek and CRP and five acres of hay and three acres of prairie strip, so the uh, row crop acres are just 60 out of 80. But um, 
Yeah, I've come up with this uh, acronym. I might want to change it, but <laughs> we were using the acronym DRIPS, D-R-I-P-S-S. Those six letters have a lot of meaning when it comes to a thoughtful cover cropping system. When we come back, Lee will explain. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. D stands for decreasing the amount of nitrates and phosphorus that leave my farm. So D, decrease. Uh, what I'm talking about there is as a lot of farms in Iowa, I have a lot of drainage tile on my farm. And uh, as we know, nitrates flow with drainage tile water into the watersheds. So I'm trying to cut back on that by cover cropping. And then the phosphorus uh, tends to leave with surface runoff because phosphorus binds to soil particles. So with the uh, with the fill strips along my creek and then the uh, cover crop in the field, I'm uh, trying to slow down that surface runoff. And then R uh, stands for reducing soil erosion from wind and water. And that one's pretty obvious. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone's seen snurt, uh, snow dirt in the winter in the ditches and the snow drifts. We do lose some topsoil every year that way. And then um, a lot of times in the spring, you'll see those little dust devils out in the tilled field when the wind comes up. That's another way that we lose topsoil. So we're trying to cut back on that because when we have that vegetation out there, the soil isn't going to move as easily. So that's another way we save money, too, by keeping our topsoil where it's supposed mm -hmm. to be. And then uh, the I standing for increasing soil biology and earthworm activity. And uh, in addition, refers to increasing organic matter. Uh, these are all related topics. So I did go back in my records, uh, in my soil test records, and look around a little bit to see what uh, organic matter percentages we've had over the years. I should say right up front that organic matter depends a lot on where the samples are pulled on the farm and what methods are used to analyze the samples. Uh, so we may not be comparing apples to apples here over the years. But uh, in any case, one of the benefits from cover crops clearly is this increased soil biology and earthworm activity, and the organic matter, of course, plays into that. So looking back at my records, I see uh, we used ISU's testing lab in 89, 91, and 93 for soil testing on my farm, and uh, we ranged from 2.8% uh, to 6% across the farm, depending on where the sample came from. And then a similar kind of range in 91. So the first one was 89, then 91. 93, we ranged from 3.0 to 4.8. So again, quite a range. More recently, I've been using the Haney soil test every year. And uh, the newest number I'm seeing there is a 3.6% for the row crop acres. Now, as a point of reference, I understand that a 4% organic matter is, is optimal for growing corn and soybeans. So, and we know that the prairie soil had a higher and a much higher uh, organic matter. So it has declined over the years. To cap that off uh, in reference to the cover crops, I can't tell you exactly what influence they've had 
but we know from research that generally speaking, having more roots in the soil throughout the year does increase organic matter in the soil. And that's something you continue to measure with different soil testing? Correct. So I intend to use the Haney soil test every year, uh, every fall after harvest, and I intend to test three different areas, my hay field, my row crop acres, and then prairie strips. And so we probably will see different measurements over the years uh, with the hay field and the prairie strips because of the perennial crops a little bit higher than the row crop with the cover crops on them. But we'll see. Uh, I'd be interested to find out. Right. Yep. There's another another aspect of this that's data-driven yet to monitor over time to see what changes really make a difference. That's right. And once again, it's important. Data is influenced by how it's collected and analyzed. It's so important to be comparing apples to apples. And that's why I'm trying to do those any soil tests every year from the same places on the farm using the same type of test. Uh, so we should get a good comparison that way. After eight years of cover cropping, Lee has seen many benefits on his land. You'll hear what those are right after this. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. When you talk about the decreasing nitrate and phosphorus and reducing soil erosion, increasing that soil biology, since you've been cover cropping for eight years, how do you measure or how have you seen that over those eight years? Yeah, that's a great question, Megan, and and that's a critical question because when we uh, make our case for cover crops, we need to be able to show data and show analysis of that data that helps to persuade our neighbors. So with the nitrate and phosphorus, what we're doing there is I'm working in cooperation with the Iowa Soybean Association on my saturated buffer. What they do is they pull water samples. I have six test wells on the west side of my creek, and... um, we see uh, a big reduction from the inbox and then the top well to the second well because that vegetative strip in my CRP is uh, taking up excess uh, nutrient from the tile water. So we do have data there. As far as soil erosion, I did run a a model, an algorithm with uh, Agrin, Tom Bowman at a consulting company called Agrin, A-G-R-E-N, He ran the algorithm and showed over a number of years with my particular practices how much topsoil I was saving and therefore how much money I was keeping on the farm because you need to remember when topsoil moves, it takes fertilizer and nutrient with it, and that's something you can put a a dollar figure on. As far as soil biology and earthworm activity, I need to learn more there. It's a challenge to do earthworm counts on a regular basis. I do come out every week and dig around in the in the cover crop and look for earthworms and I find them, but that's not a scientific uh, earthworm count. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I see a lot of robins out here, and actually I just tweeted out this morning to some of my bird friends, and they said, well, that's a reasonable assumption that because you've got a lot of robins out there, they're finding uh, a lot of worms. So um, I do notice that, a lot of birds out here when I come down here. 
Yeah. You know, that indicate your experience also indicates that there is more to learn and some of these things are unknown, but right. you you can see the change. And right. I think also that you have to be open minded to kind of investigating that on your own and seeing how those changes really do take effect on your right. farm. Right. And I, it should be said that there are people who know a lot more about this than I do. Sure. And there are people who do have data on this stuff. It's just that as a landowner here in central Iowa, I don't have all the uh, means or the time or the uh, knowledge to measure all of these things on my own land. But I'm, I, I'm learning as I go and, um, and I welcome you know, PhD students from Iowa State out to do their research and, and gather data. We had a, a PhD student out here last winter trapping pheasants in the prairie strips just to um, measure pheasant populations. Sure. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that I really get excited about because I like to have that data, but also I like to uh, encourage young scholars as well. Well, that goes nicely into I interrupted you for our strips reasons for cover crops <laughs> that you're on on pea and that also has to do with the pheasant habitat that's right so uh, number four which is uh, pea provide grazing for livestock and increase uh, pheasant habitat so i haven't jumped into this yet but i i'm looking at a way to fence off part of my covers uh, next fall next winter and graze my ewes on the cover crop but i do know i have friends like wade dooley at albion iowa who uh, graze uh, with their cattle. And um, there's also um, a farmer over at Lakeview, whose name will come to me in a minute, who uh, does this a lot. And, and they really do see a big financial benefit of having that free feed out there, so to speak. Right. Um, and we haven't talked about yet what cover crops you do plant. And certainly there's a huge variety, but will you talk about what you have on your farm and especially how that can be beneficial for grazing livestock? Most of us in Iowa, southern Minnesota, really like cereal rye or winter rye because mm -hmm. it's so robust. It does not winter kill. It goes dormant. And then like here, I'm looking at it right now on my farm, it springs into life in, in March. And uh, even in the middle of winter, if there's two or three sunny days in a row, it'll green up. It's, it's quite amazing. But I do plant mixes. And so I've tried uh, rapeseed, sure. I've tried brown mustard, I've tried turnips and radishes, I've tried uh, vetch, common vetch or hairy vetch, hairy vetch, I think. But this cereal rye really is the uh, king of the hill as far as uh, we mm -hmm. can tell in this part of the country for robustness and growth. And I believe it's quite good for uh, grazing cattle on as well. Three years ago, we did make uh, cereal rye hay off of 10 acres. And, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so that's another way to do it. We baled that and then pulled right in behind the baler with the cedar and planted uh, soybeans right the same day. So that can be done. Uh, one of the drawbacks for grazing, of course, is a lot of us have pulled out our fences, and so we have to figure out how to refence our farms. <laughs> right, or put uh, in something temporary, or whomever you're working with on that kind of coordinate a solution. Right, right, and can certainly for cattle. If I think if they're trained, you can get by with a single electrified uh, strip on posts. I think uh, sheep might need a little bit more than that. I am a little bit worried about the predators coming in from outside with sheep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, uh, you'll have to let us know what you experience. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm thinking a guard a guard llama is in my future. Oh, no, yeah, hey, that might be a good addition. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the S, the two S's, number five, the first S stands for sequestering excess nutrients. And the reason we like that idea is the nutrients that I'm talking about, nitrogen, the nitrate and the phosphorus, and they don't flow off the farm into the waterways and contribute to the Gulf hypoxic zone. And are available, according to research scientists, are actually available to the crop in the future. It's not clear to me if they're always available that following year or not. Again, the the researchers at Iowa State know more about that than I do. But the concept is if you have a plant growing out here, when the soybeans and corn are not growing, it's logical to see that the plant would take up some of that excess nutrient excess Mm -hmm. fertilizer that's in the soil and then keep it in the biomass on the soil, right? And then so some of that would be available in the future to the corn or soybeans that are growing uh, in that same field. That's another plus, and that's the way it improves the water quality because then it's keeping more of the nutrient, excess nutrient on the farm and not allowing it to flow through the tiles or with surface runoff. And then the last S in DRIPS, the second S and the last letter in the acronym yep. mm-hmm. is uh, saving money by reducing tillage. So in our system here, we don't do any fall tillage at all, and we don't do any spring tillage except for just coming in with the planter, planting green. Now, to terminate the crop, you can either spray before you plant or after, but depending on how wet the soil is, you might want to wait till after planting. Obviously, you don't want to be out here with a sprayer when it's too wet um, or with a planter when it's too wet. But basically, you're saving on the chisel pond in the fall if it's a corn year, and then you're saving on the spring tillage with your field cultivator, or as my friends in Minnesota call it, a digger. Sure. <laughs> uh, that's Minnesota Millennial Farmer calls it a digger. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so you're saving two trips across the field there with the uh, you know the fuel, the equipment cost, and the operator time. And my cover crops average about $37 an acre cost up front, but then you have to take off the tillage costs and so on, uh, the fuel. And then you have to look at the benefits. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're grazing, you're probably not losing any money that way. So so that's my drips. Uh, decrease, reduce, increase, provide, sequester, and save. So there you go. <laughs> There's a variety of reasons. I think this is also a good foundation if for someone who hasn't quite adopted cover crops yet or uh-huh. is thinking about it these are six reasons and six ways to really evaluate your own operation and find out what your goals are and if any right. of these um, will really make a difference and is that kind of what you recommend to to people who are starting out about this this is a way to start to make that plan for yourself yeah, and especially put these ideas down on paper or memorize them and then go to a couple of field days in your area. That may not be possible this summer, but I'm sure individual farmers would let you walk around. I certainly would. And then the other way to use this, Megan, would be when a landlord and a tenant sit down or get on the phone with each other and talk about the upcoming year and rent and so on. You know, these would be conversation points for that as well. So I would encourage landowners, you know, to really get educated on these six points and talk with the renter and say, hey, you know, can we make this work? Ideally, the landowner would say, you know, I'll I'll chip in on the cover crop cost. You're a good tenant. I want to keep you. And uh, 
I want you to make a little money on my farm, you know, so I'd be glad to help with cover crop expenses or whatever it takes. So I would recommend that, yeah, for landowners too. Great. Well, DRIPS is the acronym to remember. And (laughs) we are going to do additional podcasts together to talk a little bit more about cover crops and implementation and benefits. So again, this is the great way to get started, to start evaluating what cover crops can do for you. And we'll continue to speak on this topic and keep learning together. Thanks to Megan Volstead and Lee Tesdale for this discussion. And thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.